All right, church, if you'll go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, to the book of 1 Thessalonians. As I mentioned earlier, we've been continuing in this theme of missions because we began in going through the Gospels and specifically the Gospel of Luke being the last Gospel we went through, seeing Jesus continue to be about establishing the kingdom. And of course, he inaugurated the kingdom in his first coming. And then we've continued to see and learn more as we move through the book of Acts on what the continued establishment of his kingdom looks like. And that looks like his church preaching from the scriptures, his word. Of course, we emphasized heavily last week and continue this month in our verse for the month, Acts chapter 2, verse 32, this Christ God has raised up and of that we are all witnesses. And so as we continue to see this, last week we were in Acts 17 and we saw Paul and Silas visiting with the believers in Berea and how they were warmly welcomed there. But prior to that, they had gone to visit the believers in Thessalonica. And so that being, we've transitioned, we continued now into the epistles, and we find ourselves in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I want us to see some of some, some important characteristics, some important things to take away here on what it looks like to speak the gospel, to be a witness and testify to the resurrection of Christ, and how we can be equipped to do so, and what we need to be equipped with to do so. So with that, I want to encourage you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we read our text for this morning coming from the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness." Nor did we seek gl glory from people, rather from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God what you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come to your word, I pray that you would guard me from error. 
that you would help uh, me to accurately and passionately preach your word, that that would be the center of our time this morning, and that your word would go forth and pierce our hearts and move us to walk in obedience to it, that we might better make your name known, continue to establish your kingdom, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I pray that you would bless this time that we have together around your word, that it would be fruitful and effective for the sanctification of your church and the glorification of your name. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. I've already mentioned last week we looked at Acts 17, heavily focused on Paul and Silas's missionary journey to the people of Berea, where they found those people to be noble for their diligent study of the scriptures and their reception of the gospel. And this was indeed what took center stage for us as we continue to see and look that the disciples were commissioned by Jesus in Acts 1 to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we saw that the Holy Spirit empowers us For that purpose, to share the word, to reason from the scriptures. And immediately preceding that, Paul and Silas, as I said, had gone to Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, they received a much different greeting than that of the Jews in Berea. So go back real quick with me to Acts 17, because I want to refresh our memory on this instance that Paul is referring to on his first coming to the disciples in Thessalonica preaching the gospel there and seeing some come to Christ. So Acts 17, again, is where we see that. And starting in verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, remember we saw last week this was a common practice. They would go to the synagogue and witness from the Scriptures. Just as we go back to Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he references nothing but what? The Scriptures, pointing to exactly what God the Father had been doing from eternity past to this moment, establishing for himself a people. So, Here they go, they're going into the synagogue, pick back up verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So once again, see this clear, continued theme of what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do, which is testify, be a witness to the resurrection of Christ by the glory of God the Father, to the glory of God the Father in Jesus Christ. So, They go to the Sabbath. On three Sabbath days, they preach from the Scriptures. In verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So what we have happen here is people respond to the preaching of God's word, having been pierced to the heart at the reality of their sin, hearing the gospel. And not only did a great many, a few Jews respond, but what happens? A great many devout Greeks respond as well. But the Jews were jealous. 
So the majority of the Jewish population are now enraged at Paul's preaching the gospel of Christ. And how do they respond? And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had, uh, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So the Jews in the city form a mob and they go against the house of this brother Jason, drag him out because they can't find Paul and Silas there. And they put him on this mock trial, uh, this sham of a trial because of these men have turned the world upside down, preaching that there is another king other than Caesar, Jesus. And they did so from what? By reasoning to the scriptures. And so this is the context of Paul's coming to Thessalonica, that these, this conglomeration of Jews and Greeks and women, they come together, they, they hear the gospel, reasoned from the scripture, they respond to the gospel, and now we have the church in Thessalonica. And so Paul writes back to this church to encourage them in their faith so that they continue to grow and be discipled. And that's where we get here our letter of First and Second Thessalonians, or our letters, rather. So picking back up in our verses for today, I want us to, to glean some things from Paul's encouragement to believers living in this context in which there is rabid uh, opposition to the gospel and to them for the fact that it goes counter not only to the Jewish faith, but that it goes counter to the culture of their day, which is Hail Caesar, right? And so we pick back up in verse 1 of our text for today, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So prior to their coming to Thessalonica, we have the instance in chapter 16 of Acts with the Philippian jailer. So they had been jailed, imprisoned, and they broke out upon singing and declaring the gospel, and the jailer gets ready to kill himself, right? So this is a very familiar story there in the book of Acts. But what I want us to see here is there can be no doubt that sharing the gospel can, will, and does come with conflict. But the question that we must ponder is why? Why does sharing the gospel come with conflict? In reality, the answer to why sharing the gospel comes with conflict is very simple. It's because the gospel is offensive. Now, the follow-up question to that is why is the gospel offensive? Well, the gospel is offensive because it offends our, our sense of self-governance 
The gospel offends our self-entitlement. And in the macro view, the gospel offends our very sense of self. It runs counter to the self-sufficient and self-affirming message of our day and of every day, which is the indulgence of the sinful flesh. The gospel is offensive because it goes counter to the flesh. It runs counter to the idea that we are okay just the way we are. I've, I've said it multiple times from this pulpit, and I'll say it multiple more times. The gospel may be come as you are, but it is come as you are and be forever changed. If we're going to be a church who firmly believes that to be a Christian is to be on mission for the kingdom of God, which is what we saw last week. And to be on mission for the kingdom of God is to be empowered by the Spirit of God who illuminates the word of God for the glory of God to be made known in Jesus Christ. If we're going to be a church who affirms those things as revealed in Scripture, and if we're going to be a church who studies, knows, reasons, and disciples from the Scriptures, then we must ask ourselves, are we prepared to be offensive? Are we prepared to be offensive? And I don't mean in how brash, rude, or arrogant, or even hateful we are. Because there's far too many self-proclaiming Christians that think that because the gospel is offensive, that means that they can act in a brash, rude, arrogant, and hateful ways toward all people, even their brothers and sisters in Christ. So I definitely don't mean to act in that way. I mean, are we ready and willing to carry the torch of the gospel and shine the light on sinful, fallen brokenness of this world, beginning with our own? Because that's, that's the reality. If we've submitted to and, and believed in the gospel, the gospel, the first place it shines light on, the first sin that it shines light on when it comes into our lives and pierces our heart is whose? Our own. And so by believing in the gospel, we openly admit that we too are fallen and broken sinners who have been made new by the working of Christ on the cross. Are we ready to carry that gospel torch? And if the answer is yes, as your pastor, I sincerely hope the answer is yes, then we must ask what is required to share the gospel? If the gospel is offensive and it carries with it this open admission that we too are sinners as along, with, along with the rest of the broken, fallen world, then we have to ask ourselves, what is going to be required of me to share this gospel of offensiveness? And the answer is boldness. Because that is what Paul reminds these Thessalonians that he came in the gospel with, that he came in boldness with the gospel because of what he had experienced at Thessalonica, I mean, rather, Philippi, rather. And then he comes to Thessalonica in boldness because of what he experienced in prison at Philippi. And now he experiences more opposition. And so what does he do? Does he shrivel away? No. Where does he go then? To Berea. To continue to share the gospel. Church, our community is full of people who are constantly 
being affirmed by false gospels. Our community is full of people who are constantly being affirmed by false gospels. Perhaps none more prevalent than the false gospel of cultural Christianity. There is an unfortunate belief that because we've grown up in a certain area, maybe we've been to church here or there throughout our life and have a vague knowledge of who God is and we we know the name of Jesus, that that equates to salvation. Are you ready to offend that sensibility? Because let me tell you this morning, the true gospel is offensive to those sensibilities? Are you ready to engage in conversations with family, friends, and strangers who think that way? Who think that because they maybe walked an aisle at one point, but have proceeded to live a life that is full of sin and devoid of fruit of the Holy Spirit, that they think that they're saved? If boldness is required of us, then we must ask ourselves, what does gospel boldness look like? Because boldness is required of us. And that's what Paul says here. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. We came from conflict. We walked into conflict. And we needed boldness from who? In our God to declare to you the gospel. So if boldness is required of us, then we need to look within ourselves so that we we can know what are some things that we can, some characteristics of gospel boldness that we can see to know, like, am I living in gospel boldness or am I shriveling away from it? And simply allowing myself to kind of live within my own Christian bubble and be comfortable with that rather than openly shining the light of the gospel, even if it's offensive. So what does gospel boldness look like? Let's continue reading. Pick back up in verse three. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. The boldness that is required to share the gospel does not come from within. This is too often the answer that we see in the movies or that we hear in these great stories of these different, these different heroes or, or what, whatever, right? Or a sports team we watch, like they, they summon something from within themselves and just find a way to overcome whatever it is. That's, that's not what the gospel is like, And that's, that's, that's not the boldness that is required to share the gospel. It's not something that we just kind of, like, I just, need to be, I just need to be bold. I just need to be brave. I just need to find it within. Gospel boldness begins with the truth of the message that we have to share. The church at Thessalonica, those who believe the message of the gospel, preached from the scriptures upon Paul and Silas' journey there, are still living amongst the very Jews who vigorously preached against Paul and who eagerly chased him out of town. These Thessalonians still had to live amongst that crowd. And so they needed gospel boldness. They needed to know what it looked like. They needed to remember how Paul had to come to them in that boldness, and they needed to live in that same boldness. So it's not Paul simply saying, just just be bold like me. Thessalonians are still living amongst the Greek culture in which the Greek believers came from in pagan ideologies of sex and self. 
So Paul places all confidence in what? Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. So we speak. We speak the gospel boldly, not because of something within ourselves, but because of the gospel itself. So what does gospel boldness look like? Well, first and foremost and primarily, it looks like confidence in our message. Gospel boldness doesn't look like just finding confidence within ourselves. It doesn't look like I just need to be more brave, just need to find this, just kind of grit my teeth and do it. I'm just going to do it. Gospel boldness looks like you have to have the utmost confidence in the gospel itself. We read this elsewhere from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, if you just want to make a note of that off to the side. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Church, before we can dream about showing people the truth of the gospel as revealed by the Spirit of God in the Word of God, we ourselves must have the utmost confidence in the message we preach. Going hand in hand with this, when we have the utmost confidence in the message of the gospel, we will have the utmost confidence in our identity. And so notice how these things, these two things go hand in hand. We have to have confidence. Gospel boldness looks like confidence in our message. And that then informs who we are. Because it's upon hearing the gospel that we become believers. And it is by the faith that is initiated in us by God the Father, by grace through faith, that we come to salvation. And then it is by remembering that and holding to that and having confidence in the resurrection of Christ and being a witness and testifying to that, that we can have confidence in our identity. Not an identity that is based in anything in this world or of ourselves, but a confidence of our identity in Christ that is informed by the gospel that has been preached into our hearts. We read this prior to our text for this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you'll look there. Just a little up the page, or maybe you have to turn back to the left. Nonetheless, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting verse 4, Paul leads the letter with, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. And so he he wants them to be emboldened 
and assured first of what? Verse 4 there of chapter 1. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He wants, to be, he wants them to be assured that they have been chosen, brought to faith in Christ by God the Father. And because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So it is God who has saved you. He brought the gospel to you through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us. And your faith is now legendary throughout your region because of how you've lived out the gospel in the midst of such conflict. So yes, we must have confidence in our message, confidence in our identity, because our culture is starved for identity. Next time you're in a crowd, take note of the various things that people so vigorously choose to identify themselves by. I saw this just a few weeks ago. There's a thing that exists called Disney adults, right? I mean, it's, it's laughable. They, they, their entire identity is based off the fact that they love a theme park, right? They're like, that's all they wear. That's all they talk about. It's what they do. They, like, it's, it's mind-boggling. And we, but we also can look all over our culture, all over our society, and see people who make their entire identity about things or places or stuff, teams. We all know that kid in high school who made his identity out to be that of a country boy, right? So what did he do? He wore the Wranglers. He had a mullet, stickers on his truck. He wanted everything about himself to say, I'm a country boy, because he needed to convince himself and everybody else around him. Meanwhile, he lived in town, his truck never saw dirt, and he never stepped foot on a farm. You laugh because you've seen it yourself. There are an innumerable amount of ways that people try to find identity, purpose, and belonging in this world. When we are in Christ and have a confidence in the message of the gospel, we realize that this is our identity. Christ is our identity. The gospel is our identity. Now, does that mean that we can't wear Wranglers and pretend to be a cowboy if we don't want to? No, you can go ahead and do that. But Christ supersedes all other identities we try to project. What it means is that everything else in my life is filtered through my identity in Christ. This will breed gospel boldness, which comes with conviction of message and a passion for the kingdom of God. So what does gospel boldness look like? It looks like confidence in our message, confidence in our identity. Well, let's see what else it looks like. Continue reading. Chapter 2, verse 5, we pick back up. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So, what we see here is that gospel boldness looks like gospel humility. We read this once again elsewhere from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let not gospel boldness become synonymous with pride, arrogance, or hatefulness. 
The gospel keeps us in a posture of humility because the gospel reminds us constantly that it is only because of God's grace that we have been brought from darkness to light. And that is the very thing that should spurn our boldness is that we've seen how the gospel can affect a life in our own hearts. And we want to see that light shine and dawn on the darkness of other hearts. And that is the very thing that should spurn our boldness, that the gospel has the power to save sinners because it saved me. We continue reading and we see this testified, picking back up in verse seven, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. So here this language, this analogy that's used is this close, intimate, familial language. It gives an example that all are familiar with, a mother who loves her child and is, is nurturing that child. And Paul says, that's how we felt about you because you had become our brothers and sisters in Christ. So gospel boldness not only looks like having gospel humility, but that gospel humility inspires and continues to grow in us a desire to be together in fellowship and unified together with the church. So gospel boldness looks like gospel community. There's to always be amongst us a brotherly love and affection which permeates every word we utter to one another. We have far too many Christians who fall on the extremes when it comes to how we view others through the lens of, of faith. And let me explain what I mean by that. We have far too many Christians who err so far on the side of love that they forsake the truth of the gospel. They want to speak in love, but not in truth. Now, we'll amen that and we're like, yes, I've seen that. We know that, Right? And, and people will like and share re videos of preachers that stand behind a bully pulpit and, and spew hatred because here's the other side of it. We have far too many Christians who are all too eager to give people a piece of their mind and to wrap it in gospel language and then martyr themselves by saying, I'm just speaking the truth. I'm just speaking the truth. Meanwhile, there's no humility in their gospel. There's no, there's no love in that gospel. When we live in gospel community, we must be ready to both love and speak the truth as well as speak the truth in love. That this is what it means to exercise a brotherly love and affection for one another. This is what it means is that when I speak the truth to my brother or my sister to hold them accountable as we should, as we're called to do, that it's not coming from a place that I want to in any way embarrass them or, or project myself to be more self-righteous than they, but it is simply for the purpose that I want us con to continue to walk in Christ lockstep together. And it is maybe from the standpoint that I've been in that same place they are, so I want to speak the truth to them from a place of love, not simply just because I want to tell them how it is. And the same thing, we must be ready to speak that truth. 
We can't, for the sake of saying that we love our brother and sister, say, I don't want to offend my brother and sister because the gospel is offensive. We continue reading, pick back up verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our label, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Elsewhere, we see in Philippians, Paul thanks the Philippian church for providing his way to go to the Thessalonians. Continue, verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So, There we see this example of Paul that this is what we did. We sought to hold ourselves to this standard and walk among you in holiness and righteousness and to live out the gospel among you. So you're witnesses of that fact. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted you to do the same. So just like a father is constantly trying to to teach their child or, or keep their child from climbing up on the countertop and putting flour into the sugar. I'm speaking from experience here. Or doing things like this, like a father with their child, they're constantly trying to teach them not to do the things that ought not be done. And Paul's saying, I I tried to walk among you and live that out, but also how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you also and charged you to do what? To walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So this is not only that, that that we hear the gospel, we believe the gospel, and then we we seek to to share the gospel, but that is a continuing thing, to walk it out, to live it out. There has existed in the church for far too long this diseased resistance to holiness. People will become so entrenched in their living, make so many excuses for themselves, and then when a brother or sister tries to do what we just talked about, to to speak the truth in love and, and just truly, genuinely wants to lovingly hold them to account to the gospel, they'll quickly retort with some snarky remark about grace or tolerance, or they're quick to recite, he who is without sin cast the first stone. They'll accuse a brother or sister by, about being self-righteous in their attempt at accountability. So just as much as we must be ready to speak the truth, we must be ready to have the truth spoken to us. When our holiness is founded in Christ, then we can boldly walk in Christ that the gospel may be lived out. When our holiness is founded in Christ, that's the idea here, is not this self-righteous holiness, but a holiness that says, I am only holy because Christ has made me so. That's the gospel. And so when a brother or sister comes to us in that spirit and attitude, we must be willing to realize, like, I'm not in lockstep with my brother, and I need to submit and come and repent and return that we may walk together as a church and as a unified body of Christ. Then we can boldly walk in Christ that the gospel may be lived out. To walk in gospel boldness is to walk in a worthy manner. So in order... To, be, to walk in gospel boldness, we must be absolutely 
convinced of the message, our, finding our confidence in the message, and then we must live it out. We must walk worthy and hold one another to account for walking worthy. And Paul ends our, our final verse for today, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as, it, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. The key idea being there, that hearing the gospel and responding to the gospel in salvation does not cease the work of the word in our hearts. Did you notice that? That you heard the gospel. We thank God constantly for this, that you received the word of God, which you heard from us, and you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it, what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. So it's this, this continuing effect, this continuing work. So to walk in gospel boldness is to walk in a worthy manner, and to walk in a worthy manner is to continue to submit to the gospel. As, it, as the word of the Lord continues to ruminate and to work and to sharpen us and to hone us and to chisel us into the image of Christ. So that, just as the Thessalonians, that the testimony of what God has done in us through the gospel might resound throughout the region. Not only in word, but in deed. And may we be such a church. And so the challenge here this morning is, are you walking Worthy, and are you walking in gospel boldness? I guess maybe say those in correct order there. Are you walking in gospel boldness, and are you walking worthy? And again, just to reiterate, the only way you can do so is to have responded to the gospel. So if you've not responded to the gospel, you've simply just kind of been going on this pseudo faith that you've kind of accumulated throughout the years. My challenge is for you to. Sincerely search your heart, see the gospel in the word of God, repent, believe, and turn to him. For this is the gospel. That he sent his only son to pay the penalty for our sinfulness that we might be made right and walk with him in a right relationship. And this is not only what we preach, but this is what we preach boldly. This is what we walk in boldly and worthily. Let's pray, church. God, we love you. As we've heard your word this morning, I pray that it would pierce our hearts, convict us where necessary. I pray for those who are believers that they would see that your word is continually working in them through the fellowship that we have with one another, through our own personal study of your word, and through how we live that out. May your gospel continue to abound in our lives, bringing us 
to a constant posture of humility, giving us boldness through your spirit to share the truth of the gospel and to walk worthy of the gospel. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know you, that you would draw them to repentance now. That you would illuminate their minds and their hearts through your word and your spirit working according to your word. Bring them to repentance and draw them to yourself. Lord, help us to be a church that walks boldly and worthily. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.